Well, we are officially in week three of our summer series, The Seven Churches. Come on, how many of you guys have enjoyed the series so far? Any, anybody like it so far? Yeah, a couple people? Come on. Come on. We, we've been start, like working through the start of Revelation, which to some people is a scary book. To others, you're a little too enthusiastic about it. Um, but we've been working through the start of Re- Revelation, uh, looking at this reality that, that Revelation is a book about how Jesus is still in control. And, and specifically, we've been moving through these seven letters that, that Jesus wrote through John to the seven churches throughout the province of Asia Minor. And so far, we've talked in our introduction, um, Pastor Dan, he talked about um, the reality that Jesus is in control no matter what we face. Jesus is still in control. And last week, Spencer dove into the letter uh, of, uh, to the church of Ephesus. But this week, I, I'm very excited because maybe I'm biased, but this is, we're diving into a letter that is perhaps the most fascinating piece of uh, scripture that I've had the privilege of studying. And it's mostly because it's easy to read it on a surface level and, and actually miss what Jesus is doing in, in this letter. And it's the letter to the church in Smyrna and it says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, these are the words of the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you possess rich treasure. I know the slander on the part of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, so that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have affliction. But be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. So I'm excited this morning to preach to you on the idea of, that's all I need. Father God, I just pray over your people right now, Lord, that we will all have hearts to hear the word that you're saying, God. That you'll bring this letter to life for us, Lord, and that that you'll give me the words that you have to say to your people, Lord, that none of us will leave this place without being changed. I pray this in your name. Amen. That's all I need. That's all I, I need. How many of you guys have ever said that phrase in anger before? That's all I need. That's the last thing I needed to happen. Come on, anybody? Anyone willing to be vulnerable? Okay, a few people. That, that's good. That's good. Um, that's the last thing I need. That's all I need. Last week for me, it was uh, Sunday morning, 1.30 a.m. Me, me and my wife, um, about six months or so ago, we, we got a cute little golden retriever puppy. Um, he's adorable. His name is Charlie Brown, and uh, he's eight months old now. But, but when we got him, he, he had a parasite in his intestines, which means he has... Uh, really great bowel movements in the middle of the night. Um, and, and so there was a whole process of dealing with the parasite, and, and now we're in the aftermath. The parasite's gone, and most, most things are better, but, but he has a bit of trouble with certain foods, and we've been trying to figure out what can he eat, what can't he eat, and some things set him off. And uh, needless to say, uh, we, we, uh, at some point we bought a, a wise camera, like one of those little smart cameras that will trigger our smart lights if he's whining in his crate so we know, like, hey, we got to take him out. But the last Saturday night into Sunday morning, um, we'd fed him a treat that wasn't sitting well with his tummy, and he woke us up four times. The first time, I brought him out, and he did his business, and he was good. Second time, we woke up, and we checked the camera, and he was laying down, and we're like, oh, it, it's probably fine. And then an hour 
later, my, he wakes us up again, and my, my wife goes down and checks on him, and he's had an accident in his crate. And so we had the wonderful privilege of a 1.30 a.m. dog poop crate cleaning party and bath because it got everywhere. Come on. And I was like, this is the last thing I need. I just want to sleep. Come on. Last thing. That's all I need. But, but sometimes, you know, that phrase isn't always negative. Sometimes we say that about things we, we want. Think of it in terms of, well, all I need is more money. All I need is more stuff. All I need is a job. All I need is a family. And I remember a time when, when I was a young adult and I was in Bible college at this time, and, and I was praying pretty frequently about uh, something. I don't remember exactly what it is. My wife is convinced that it was about, um, when, or about a relationship because, you know, when you're a young adult and you're single, you have one thing on your mind, typically. Um, just, just saying, finding a significant other is a big deal to single young adults. But, but <laughs> so, so I, I was probably praying for advice about a relationship, and for a period of months, I was praying and praying and praying, and I was like, God, all I need is a word from you. Just give me a word. That's all I need. And, and he kept sending me to Bible passages that didn't exist. And it's not like it was absurd. It wasn't like, oh, go to Matthew 93 too. Well, Matthew does not have that many chapters. It wasn't anything absurd like that. It was like, go to Proverbs 32. There's my word. Flip my Bible. Proverbs says 31 chapters. God? I think there's something missing here. Or go to John 21, 26. Okay, cool. Flip to the last chapter of John, John 21. Look at it. 25 verses. Uh, God. And, and I remember... It happened every time I prayed about this subject. It happened every time I prayed. I kept, on, I kept getting like annoyed and frustrated. And finally, I was like, God, what is going on? All I need is a word from you. What is going on right now? And, and, and I heard him say to me, well, I've already told you all you need to know. You want a word, but you already have all you need. You already have all you need. That's all I need. You know, I wonder how many times in our lives we... We think, that about, we think that phrase about something. All I need is this. All I need is a word from God. All I need is money. All I need is friends. All I need is a relationship. All I need is a house. All I need is, is, is blank. But we miss the reality that we already have all we need. You know, the letter to the city of Smyrna and, and the, letter, or the letter to the church in the city of Smyrna is a fascinating piece of literature. Because, I, as I said earlier, I think it's one of those passages that it's really easy to read and on a surface level think, oh, I got it. This is great. Jesus is sending this really encouraging word to, to his church. This is lovely. I got it. Let's, let's move on. But, but there's something really fascinating when you start to dig beneath the surface and you go deeper and you start to see the beauty of the message that Jesus has for his church. And you know, right off the bat, it starts with verse 8. And to the church, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words of the first and the last who is dead and came to life. And, you know, from our perspective, it's really easy for us to look at this passage and be like, these are the words of the first and the last who is dead and came to life. Cool. Jesus is writing this letter to his church. Okay, cool. Let's move on. Let's go to the next passage. But, but when you stop, 
and you look, you see a very interesting parallel. You see, the city of Smyrna, how many of you guys are ready for a history lesson this morning? Come on. Um, you thought you were coming to a sermon, but, but we're going to talk about history. You're going to leave here knowing more about Smyrna than you might know about Edmonton. Um, city of Smyrna, 3000 BC, 3rd millennium BC, grand city. It was a Greek city-state, it was an independent city, it was a powerful city. It was actually home to Homer, who if you don't know who that is, he is the author of the Iliad and the Odyssey, which are two really old books that are still in print today, so apparently pretty popular. It's a big, big, big city. Until 609 BC, when the Lydian Empire came in, and side note on the Lydian Empire, it's really interesting, they're actually the people who made coins for the first time. I don't know. I just thought that was fascinating. Uh, but the Lydian Empire, they come in, and there's a war between the Lydian Empire and Smyrna, and, and eventually Smyrna loses, and the Lydian Empire raises the city to the ground and leaves it as a small fishing village. So Smyrna, big city, dies, and remains dead until 300 BC when Alexander the Great comes through, and legend has it that as he's staying the night in the small fishing village, he has a vision in his sleep about the city becoming a grand city, and he, he commissioned the city to be rebuilt into one of the most spectacular cities of its day. So Smyrna was the city that was known to have died and come back to life. It was the city that was once dead, but was now alive. And, and so when Jesus comes in, and from the very start, he says, these are the words of the first and the last who was dead and came to life. He starts by tying into the city's proud history. And not only that, but he's tying in, he's saying, yeah, this city, it died. And yeah, it came back to life. And yeah, it's a great city. But guess what? I am the one who was before Smyrna. I am the one who is after Smyrna. I am the one who also died and also came back to life. And no matter how grand this city is, I am still greater. Because you see, it doesn't matter what you face. It doesn't matter what problem you have. It doesn't matter how great you think you are or someone else is. It doesn't matter how proud or hurt you are by your country, how great your company's doing or how poorly it's doing. None of that matters because there's only one person sitting on the judgment seat in heaven. There's only one king ruling over all the nations, and, and that's Jesus, and no matter what, he is in charge. And, and so from the position of, your city is great, but I am greater, he says, I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you possess rich treasure. And I have to pause there for a second, because I have to apologize here. You know, I've never preached this passage before, but if I had, I know I would have said this because I've always read this passage from a 21st century perspective. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you possess rich treasure. I've always thought, wow, the Smyrna Christians, they must have been rich. And Jesus is saying, like, you're rich, but really you're poor. And I've always, like, looked at it and been like, wow, these, these Smyrna Christians, they got to they gotta get their act together. But, but the reality was that that wasn't the case, you see. Smyrna, during the Roman period, was a grand city. It was a city of 100,000 residents, slightly smaller than Ephesus, which we talked about last week. 
but it was widely considered one of the most important cities in the entire province of Asia. And, and Smyrna, it had impressive architecture, had a massive agora, which is for market and governance and all these different things. It had a theater that could seat 20,000 people, which if you pause there and you're a math person, um, you do the math, that's one-fifth of the city could fit in their theater. It's like Roger's place holding 200,000 people. It's insane, the size of this theater. And, and, but most importantly, it had a great harbor that was considered one of the finest seaports in the entire world. And the harbor was a massive hub for trade because it was the closest seaport to Europe. So if you wanted to cut time off your journey, and instead of going up north through Constantinople and down into Greece, you could go straight to Smyrna, sail to Athens, and then you were opened up to the entirety of Europe. So a lot of trade moved through Smyrna, especially since the harbor it was strategically located at the end of an inlet, which meant it was safe from storms. It was surrounded by mountains, which meant it was highly defensible. And, and on top of that, Smyrna, the name Smyrna actually comes from the word myrrh, which if you don't know about myrrh, myrrh is the, this really expensive fragrance that the Bible talks about. Myrrh was one of the gifts that the um, that the wise men brought to Jesus at his birth. Myrrh was what Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus wrapped Jesus in at his death. Myrrh is a very expensive fragrance. And Smyrna, well, Smyrna, named after myrrh, had exclusive rights to the trade of myrrh throughout Europe and the province of Asia Minor. So Smyrna was a rich city. It's a really, really rich city, and so it's easy for us to look at this church and be like, wow, they, they must have been rich, but, but the reality is, as great as the city was, it was not a great place for Christians to live. See, at the time, in the Roman Empire, there was a law that mandated something we call emperor worship, where you had to call the emperor our Lord and our God, which obviously for Christians was a bit of a problem. And in some places, Christians could get away with it because the other citizens didn't really care. But Smyrna, well, well Smyrna was home to not one, but, but two temples to dead emperors. Like, not joking, people would go to these temples to offer offerings to dead dudes who'd ruled the Roman Empire like tens and twenties and hundreds of years before. And so, in Smyrna, to be Christian meant you refused to worship the emperor and the sect of the emperor worship was so strong in Smyrna that to be Christian meant you would be cast out of society. To be Christian meant you'd lose your job. To be Christian meant you would be kicked out of the trade guilds, which meant you couldn't be, participate in the trade, import and export of goods. It, it, it meant that people would avoid buying your goods on the street. People would, would avoid you. And so the Smyrna church is surrounded by this grand display of wealth, and they have nothing. And in the midst of that, Jesus comes in and he says, I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you possess rich treasure, which is a beautiful phrase. I know your affliction. I'm not only with you, but I'm intimately aware of what you're going through. And I know your poverty, even though you possess rich treasure. I know that you are poor, but even though you have no material riches, you're still rich. You may have nothing, but you still have everything. You may have no money, but you still have me. All they had was Jesus. And that was enough. 
That was enough. And you know, to our ears, that may sound like a foreign concept. Because we, we truly live in, a, in a, this Western world mindset of, it's all about me. It's all about me getting more stuff, me getting more money, me taking my happiness. We've, we've kind of built this idol to ourselves in our heart at times. And, and, and so ideas like tithing are foreign. When God's like, hey, give 10% of the money you get to me. And we're like, whoa, God, 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 hands off my money. Like, God, are you just greedy? Why do you need my money anyways? And, and God's like, it's, it's not about the money. It's about the heart. What matters more to you, the money or God? If you didn't have the money and all you had was Jesus, would that be enough? And then Jesus goes on and he says, I know the slander on the part of those who say they are Jews and are not but are synagogue of Satan, which is really talking about the second affliction that the Smyrna Christians are facing. See, one, they're poor. And two, they are being slandered. They're being persecuted by the Jewish synagogues of, of the day. And there's some debate on exactly what this verse means, but, but from my research, the, the most logical um, answer to it is that, that the Smyrna church was actually facing persecution at the hands of the Jewish synagogues. Uh, because you see, under, under Roman law, as I mentioned earlier, there was this thing called emperor worship. You had to worship the emperor, and everyone had to do it with one exemption. The Jews. Why? Well, when the Roman Empire came in and conquered Israel, Israel kicked up such a fuss that the Rome was like, fine, worship whoever you want, just let us rule you. And so the Jews, they, they had an exemption. They could worship whoever they wanted. They didn't need to worship the emperor. But, but the Christians, they didn't have that exemption. And, and the Christians were actually a threat to, to the Jewish exemption because they often met in synagogues. Many of them came from Jewish roots. Christianity was born out of Judaism, out of Israel, and, and the Christians, they were considered to be trouble for Rome, so the Jews wanted to kick them out of the synagogues. The Jews wanted to say, like, hey, these people suck. We are not related to them. So what the Jews did is they started this, this really good whisper campaign, uh, it was, and they started slandering them. It's basic stuff, like Christians met to worship God, and so the, the Jews would spread rumors. Oh, well, they're not worshiping God. They're actually just having orgies. If you don't know what that word is, turn on safe search, Google it later. Um, and then Christians, they would take communion, eating the body and the blood of the Lord in remembrance of what Jesus did on the cross. And so the Jews spread the rumor, ooh, they're cannibals. And who wants to be a friend with a cannibal? Come on. Um, and then the Christians, they, they called one another brother and sister. So the Jews said, well, they're anti-family. They hate the family, which in Rome was a huge deal because the family was everything. So not only are the believers poor, but they are being mocked and insulted and having lies told behind their back, which make people hate them and despise them. And, and, and dis but even despite their poverty, even despite everything people were saying about them, they didn't waver in their faith because they had all they needed. And you know, to people like us who are so entrenched in our culture that we won't even stand up when we read the Bible and it says something that stands against what the political narrative is, and we're just like, ooh, I'm just going to rip that page out of the Bible. To people like that, this, this is really foreign. But the Smyrna Christians, they're like, it doesn't matter what you say. 
It doesn't matter if you take everything from me. All I need is Jesus. And then the letter goes on, and Jesus says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Beware the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have affliction. This is the third problem that the Smyrna church was facing. One, they're poor. Two, they're being slandered. And three, Jesus comes in with this really encouraging word. Hey, guys, guess what? It's about to get worse. You're about to face persecution. It's about to get worse. You see, imprisonment meant being locked in a rat-infested dungeon full of human excrement without, with little light and little food, and, and death meant being fed to wild beasts in a coliseum in front of roaring fans, or, even better, being burned at a stake. If I had the option between those three things, I would opt for none of them. Um, and then we see 10 days, and we're like, ooh, cool, and for 10 days you will have affliction. Ah, I can survive anything for 10 days, except, I guess, death. Uh, but... But the church would recognize this as a metaphor for meaning a short period of time, a short period of intense persecution. And in fact, scholars say there were about 10 distinct time periods representing 10 waves of identifiable persecution under 10 separate Roman emperors in Smyrna. So let's recap here. You're a Christian who lives in Smyrna, so one, you're poor, two, people insult you and tell lies behind your back, and three, you will be persecuted. But be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. You see, this is where we see the sneak peek of what Jesus had planned for these believers, sneak peek of what Jesus had for the end. That though they suffered, there was glory coming to them. That though their life was hard, if they would just persevere, if Jesus was just enough, there was something greater. You see, the crown in in Roman society was, it it was a symbol of status. The emperor would wear a crown, signify I'm important, I have power. The winners in Colosseum games would wear crowns to indicate like, hey, I'm powerful, I won. Crowns were very important. People would wear crowns to festivals to feel important, but Christians, well, of course, they were excluded from all of these things. And, and so Jesus, at the end of this letter, he says, hang in there. And at the end of all this trouble, I will give you a crown of life. Others fight for crowns to feel important. Others fight, others fight for crowns to be famous. Others fight for crowns to be powerful. But if you remain in me, I will give you something far greater. See, the beauty of this letter is not found in the hardships that the believers experienced. It's not found in all of the problems that they faced. It's actually found in the promise that God made them. That in the midst of their struggle, even though their lives would be hard, if they remained in Jesus, they had a reward waiting for them. They had all they needed. And if that was enough, they'd receive more than they could ever imagine. See, it's this perspective that we see in Romans 8, 18, when Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. And then again, in second, to the church in Corinth, he writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, for the slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure, because we look at, not at what can be seen, 
but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. See, so often we get so focused on our present sufferings, our present problems, our present needs, that we forget none of it matters. None of it matters. We get focused on the wrong thing. We get focused on our money. We get focused on uh, relationships. We get focused on our political beliefs, on, on, on being happy that we begin to rely on things over Jesus. But if you were to lose your job tomorrow, would Jesus still be enough? If you were to lose your house, would Jesus still be enough? If your family were to mock you and insult you, would Jesus be enough? If your friends were, were to mock you because, oh no, you believe something antiquated about things like sex before marriage. Oh, that's politically incorrect. That The Bible says that we should wait. Uh, it, but if people mock you because of that, is Jesus still enough for you? See, we need to come to a point in our lives where, where we are, the focus of our heart is not on getting more stuff or on being happy, but the focus of our heart is, is on loving people and loving God. Or loving God and loving people. We need to come to a point where it doesn't matter what we have. Where we're willing to say, I can lose it all. I can lose everything. But I will not abandon Jesus. Is Christ enough for you, or do you need the stuff? Is Christ enough for you, or would you abandon him for money? Is Christ enough for you, or would you abandon his teaching just because it's not convenient? See, there's this beautiful story that comes out of Smyrna that can get the band to come up. Beautiful story that comes out of Smyrna tens of years later about a disciple of John, a guy, one of the early church fathers, a guy named Polycarp, who who lived and died in Smyrna. So the story goes, he lived during a period of persecution in, in Smyrna. So the story goes that one night he had a dream where his pillow caught fire. And that morning he, he went out and he went to his friends, he went to the fellow believers and he said, hey, I'm, I'm pretty sure that God just warned me I'm about to be burned at the stake. But he didn't run. He didn't hide. He just waited at his house. And sure enough, three days later, the Roman soldiers, they came to arrest him. And he invited them into his house, and he, he made them a meal. And after they'd eaten, he said to them, hey, like, will you give me an hour to pray? I'm not going to run. I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to try and get away. Will you just give me an hour to pray? And, and they relented. They let him pray. And so he prayed for an hour. And and, and as the story goes, he prayed so fervently that the soldiers were moved. And the soldiers were like, we shouldn't take this guy in. We shouldn't bring him in uh, and bring him to the proconsul. We shouldn't bring him in to, to be killed. But they're Roman soldiers, and they did their duty, and they brought him in. And he, he's brought to the Roman proconsul, the judge of the time. And, and, and as he's talking with this proconsul, the, the, the guy begs him, just renounce Jesus. Just renounce him. And all this will go away. And Polycarp responds this beautiful phrase, 80 and 6 years I've served him. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? So the proconsul gets angry and he says, I'll throw you to the wild beasts. And Polycarp's like, do whatever you want. I will not renounce Jesus. 
story goes, the Jews that were sitting in this trial, they were infuriated and they run out and they gather all the shrubs and wood and everything they need to burn them at the stake and the Roman soldiers bring them out to the stake and the normal practice is they would nail the criminal's hands to the stake so they couldn't escape, but Polycarp says, hey, I'm not going to run. I'm not going to run. You can tie me if you want, but I'm not going to run. So they just tie him to the stake and, and they light the fire and... Legend has it, as the flames begin to spread, a strong wind begins to blow. So that the flames are split around him. He's flames off to his left, he has flames off to his right, but none of them are touching him. And finally, in order to kill him, the guard has to come in, they have to stab him, because the flames wouldn't kill him. And, and, and as he died, Polycarp said, I bless you, Father for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. In the face of death, Jesus was enough. If he had renounced Jesus, he could have had everything. He could have had everything. But he knew that all the money, all the fame, all the friends, all of that was worthless compared to a relationship with the living God. So all I want to leave you with this morning, as we go back into that song, Nothing Else in a Moment, is, is this question, what is most important to you? What is most important to you? What is number one in your life. Because you see, Jesus never said that money or friends or fame or any of those things were, were bad. All he said is, they shouldn't be first. They shouldn't be first. There's one throne in your heart and none of those things belong on that throne. Jesus belongs on that throne. Because if you don't have all those things, he's all you need. Is all you need. Father God, I just pray over your people right now, Lord. Move in our hearts, Lord, that we will not be people who are so focused on ourselves, but people who are focused on you. God, we thank you that we live in a country where we don't have to worry about persecution or, or being hurt or being, being imprisoned for our faith. But God, I pray that you will be so important in our hearts that even if those things were to happen, even if we were to lose everything for your sake, you'd still be enough. As we read at the start in Philippians 3, God, that for your sake, we would give up all of those things and we'd count them all as rubbish just to gain you and be found in you. I pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship together.